What is up, fam? Welcome back to the podcast. My name is Phil Sarpon. This is Phil's Guide to PsyD. This podcast is dedicated to all things clinical psychology, wellness, and graduate school. If you guys haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast. You can also show your love and support on the YouTube channel where you can like and subscribe to the video as well. All right, so with that, let's go ahead and go into the bio for Bomi. Bomi has a master's in clinical psychology from the University of Cape Town. She has experience working in general hospitals, psychiatric hospitals, and correctional facilities. She currently works as a clinical psychologist at a state hospital and also runs her own private practice where she provides reduced rate services to people who otherwise can't afford therapy in private practice. She will be pursuing a doctorate in experimental psychology at the University of Oxford this fall. She is super passionate about improving the state of mental health services in South Africa and the world at large. And she also has a YouTube channel called Clinical Psychology in Real Life. So you guys may have already seen her or passed across her YouTube channel on YouTube. She has a great YouTube channel, has a lot of great resources and services that I'll definitely put down a link in the description below so you guys can check that out. Provides a lot of great information in regards to the field of psychology. So with that, let's go ahead and dive right into this interview. Bomi, hey, how are you doing? Hi, I'm good, thanks, how are you? I'm good, I'm good. Thank you so much for uh, coming to the this interview. Uh, super excited to just to get to know you more as a South African psychologist and um, yeah, just learn more about you and your culture. So looking forward to it. Sure, um, thank you for having me here. I'm actually quite excited to be here. Uh, so we'll see how it goes. That's awesome. Well, let's just get started with, um, tell me a little bit about how you initially first got started in psychology. Like what made you interested? Uh, why did you go into the field? Yeah, sure. Um, so how I got interested in psychology honestly was a very personal thing. It was because of personal experiences that I had growing up, um, personal challenges that my siblings also had growing up. Um, and growing up in a very small town where we didn't really know much about where we can get support and access to services, there wasn't a psychologist where I was from. We had to drive an hour away in order to be able to access a psychologist. So it's through those experiences that um, I kind of wanted to understand how we can actually get help because they surely had to be a way in which um, we could get help. So I think that's where my interest started in the field of psychology. And that's kind of the thing that motivated me to want to be a psychologist, um, because I wanted to provide that sense of containment that I felt that we needed at the time. And because of my parents' own difficulties, they also weren't able to provide that sense of containment for us. So yeah, that's, that's mostly where my interest started. Wow. Oh, that I mean, that's super cool. I mean, it's cool that uh, you had that family influence as well as the cultural influence of like kind of motivating you to go into it. Um, I'm wondering because I know like with your education, like it, it is different than the American system a little bit. Uh, so tell me a little bit about like what you actually had to do to become a psychologist, like uh, maybe some of the courses you took or some of the educational milestones that you had to go through. 
Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, so things with us are slightly different because with us, you can actually practice with a master's degree because um, I know internationally you need a doctorate in order for you to actually practice. So how it works with us is that you need an undergrad and an honors. So some undergrad psychology degrees come with an honors. So if it's a four-year degree, it tends to come with an honors degree. But if it's a three-year degree, then you'd have to do your honors on the fourth year. And then um, your master's, which in most universities is one year. Um, and in some universities, like the one that I went to, it was a two-year program. That's the year where we actually get to do clinical work. So in your programs, that would be the three-year program. So we do that whole program in a year. Um, so that's research, clinical work, coursework, all of that is done in a year. And then after that, you need to do your internship. So depending on which category of psychology you're registering under. So we have industrial, um, counseling, clinical, and recently neuropsychology is also an option for you. So and and also educational psychology. So depending on what you do, you then have to do your internship, which is generally one year. And then after that, again, depending on which one you're doing, you have to do your community service. Um, and then after your community service, you then become qualified to practice as an independent practitioner, which is what I'm currently doing now. Um, yeah, no, it's kind of cool how there's, um, there's definitely some similarities and differences with the way that you um, went through that educational system. I'm wondering for you, I guess right now as a, as a psychologist, so what, what does the day-to-day -day look like for you? So that's, that's a bit of a tricky question because um, it depends on what you do. So with me, I do quite a lot. So I do work at a hospital um, and within the hospital setting, it's the normal nine to five. So with us, it's actually 7.30 to um, half past four. Um, that those are working hours. So during that time, I'm at the hospital and working there at the hospital. Um, and at the hospital, sure. So when I went to the hospital, my main role was to do forensic assessments. So um, in the hospital setting, that would mean that assessing criminal capacity. So when someone commits a crime, you usually it's more the kids that we see. If they're involved in any kind of crime, we need to then assess criminal capacity. And then also psycholegal stuff. So if there's someone that needs to testify in court and there are certain challenges that they're experiencing, so then we need to do an assessment to determine whether or not the person has the capacity to testify in court, what accommodations would need to be made to give the best, um, to get the best testament from them. So those are the kind of things that I came into the hospital to do. Um, but then also other stuff that I do is individual therapy, trauma counseling. Um, so I pretty much see anything and everything, um, screening to see whether or not someone presents with uh, maybe psychosis and they need to be referred to a psychiatrist. Uh, mm -hmm. So those are the kind of day-to-day -day things that we see within the hospital setting. And then I also have my own private practice, which I started this year. Um, and within the private practice, that's something that I do after hours. So there I would have my own individual therapy. And again, 
Um, there I see all sorts of people um, that are looking for a therapeutic space. So people who are looking to understand themselves, people who have experienced certain traumas, people who are struggling um, in terms of their everyday life experiences, also do couples therapy. Um, so there is quite a variety of people that I work with in my private practice. And then um, also I do work with a private practice that does medical legal assessments. Um, mm. So for example, if someone was involved in a car accident, there's something here called the road accident fund. So then um, you would have to go to various uh, health professionals to do various assessments to see how much of an impact the accident had. And then based on that, you would then be able to claim from the road accident fund. So some of the stuff that we do all that um, and more recently we've also started looking into um, getting involved in more criminal cases so those are the kind of the stuff that I do like in a general day that's what my day looks like so it's it's a very <laughs> it's a very difficult thing yeah. to kind of explain that in the morning this is what I do because um, whenever I have a moment I'll start working on a report from the medical legal practice um, and in between, I'm generally working on reports from the hospital um, or I'm at the hospital seeing people and then after hours, I'm then at my practice. So it's just a mixture of all of these things um, mm -hmm. that I'm doing. And this excludes an NPO that I have. So I also do work that, that is in relation to the NPO. So my day is quite is quite <laughs> a mixture of a lot of stuff. And, and, and my day is not the same every day because uh, you don't know what you're going to see at the hospital, what's going to come up at the hospital, what's going to be needed of you. Some days are a lot more quiet, so then I'd focus on reports. Other days, I spend the whole day in the hospital just seeing people, um, and then I have to come back and do my private practice work after hours. So it's mm -hmm. very dependent on what's come up for that day. But those are generally the things that that I do. That's amazing. I mean, that yeah, that sounds like so much, which is cool. I mean, that's what I love about psychology is that you can work in so many different types of settings. You can work with so many different types of patients and cases and uh, it never seems like you really get bored because there's always something that you can do differently. Um, and I just wanted to add, Phil, that I feel like um, there's just so much that's possible within the field of psychology and some things aren't even things that we're aware about. I mean, during your training, you get exposed to a lot that you can do. Um, but once you're in the profession, you, you get opened up to a lot more opportunities. And it's mm. truly what you, you decide to make of it, whether you want to branch into forensics. So with us in South Africa, um, I'm specifically mentioning forensic because it's something that I am passionate about um, yeah. so there isn't a registration of being a forensic psychologist um, but once you registered as for example a clinical psychologist you can then choose to specialize in forensics and branch into that side of things um, and do that kind of work so I mean there's a lot that you can do within the field of psychology and I think that's the beauty of it um, you can either choose to stick to one thing or you can choose to um, engage in a couple of things that interest you, but there's truly a lot to do. How big of a factor was uh, when you were choosing psychology schools, uh, did you know that for sure you wanted to stay in South Africa or were you also looking to branch out and see other different programs and become an international student? Or you know, how, how was that for you in that decision-making process? 
Yeah, um, honestly, when I started my undergrad, I feel like I didn't really know much about psychology. Um, I just knew that one day you become a psychologist and you help people. Um, and I, because of my own experiences, that kind of is what drove me to start the degree. And it's only when I got into my undergrad that I started uncovering that actually this is, this is a very long journey for me to actually be able to qualify as a psychologist. And it's not easy to actually go through that process. So to answer your question, when I started my undergrad, no, I, I literally just wanted to get a degree. It was post-matric. It was an expectation from my family for me to go to university was also something that I wanted to do because I wanted to be independent and be a professional. So at that time, I was just going into university to get my degree and then figure out life from there. But then when I got to my second year, that's when I actually got a lot more information that actually you need your master's in order to get in, um, to in order for you to practice, and also finding out how difficult it is to get into master's. I mean, when I started in my undergrad, there was like a thousand of us that did psychology and my honors, there were 100 of us. And even then, it was general psychology and industrial psychology in that 100. And then in my mm. master's year, there was only eight of us. So thinking about eight people and a 1000 people when we started, it seemed like there wouldn't be any chances for me to actually get in. So when I got into my honors year, I had to start making a decision that, okay, so what's going to happen if you don't get into your, your desired program the following year? Mm. Um, and a lot of people were discouraging. They're like, no, don't apply for clinical psychology. There's this general consensus that it's easier to get into other registrations of psychology than clinical psychology, which personally, I don't feel that's the truth because I think it's mostly dependent on what's more suitable for you and what you feel the work that you're kind of interested in and what fits for you, that would be the determinant of whether or not you get into the program. Um, so fit is quite important. So I think it's not a program thing, but rather a fit thing. Um, that people don't really take into account. So when I got into my honors year and I was just stressing about all these things, I then started thinking about, okay, so maybe I should broaden my options and look into applying um, abroad um, and going to other universities. But I knew that it would be difficult for me to actually come back to South Africa and practice. Um, and that's because it's interesting that for a South African who is a clinical psychologist to move abroad and register, um, it's a lot more easier than having someone who studied abroad to come into South Africa and actually be able to practice. So that's also something that's quite interesting. So I knew that if I went and did my master's abroad, it would be quite a challenge for me to come back. I'd have to come back and do courses that are context specific. Um, and I mean, it's understandable because of the different contexts um, and the contextual factors that you need to consider are quite important. So from that perspective, it does make sense. But at the same time, I think that was also something that was weighing heavily on me that if I do have to move and have to study abroad, then it would be a challenge for me to actually come back and practice in my own country. Um, but fortunately, I did get into my master's program the first year that I applied. So that really wasn't something that I was too worried about. But I think since that time, and also during my third year, I participated in a student exchange program to study in Canada. So I spent that year in Canada. Um, and having had that experience, um, it was just mind blowing. And just to see how, firstly, 
the the level of education was the same and the things that we learned about were the same um so it was interesting to see that and that i was actually able to to thrive when i was there um but most importantly there are certain things that we were actually taught about that we tend to kind of not delve into and one of these um that i remember because i one of my favorite classes was abnormal psychology um, and mm. one of the things that we learned about were sexual dysfunctions. Um, and mm. we learned at depth about those, how to diagnose them, how to treat them. Um, and in the South African context, that isn't something that I went through. I mean, if I compare myself to my um, undergrad um, third year students who went through the same course, like there are certain conditions that we didn't delve deep into. Um, so it was nice to have that kind of experience. And a lot of the theories that we use um, have been developed in other countries, like in the UK. So I know there's quite a lot of psychology um, theories and um, interventions that come from the UK. So those are the kind of things that started interested me in terms of thinking about whether or not I'd want to pursue studies abroad. Um, and that's the main thing, like getting access to that knowledge basis and being able to bring it into South Africa would definitely be something that that has made me quite open to studying abroad. That's incredible. I mean, I, I think it's cool because the fact that you've done your training in South Africa, obviously you you're from South Africa, you know the culture well, you know the people. I'm sure that gives you an advantage in regards to treatment, in regards to how you can help your patients and help your clients. Uh, I'm, I'm wondering if there are any like subtle differences in the way that uh, you go about therapy in regards to having a cultural uh, influence to it, or um, perhaps, you know, because you know the setting really well, um, making that uh, experience unique for those uh, patients. Uh, I wonder if there's any 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 type of cultural components that you think about in regards to doing treatment or therapy or assessment. So um, yes, definitely there is. For example, with psychometric assessments, it's a given that you need to consider the cultural components. Um, and also if there are norms that are context specific, then it becomes important to use those norms because it kind of gives you like a more accurate um, estimation if it's people with the same kind of experiences and from the same cultural context. In terms of therapy itself, um, I'm gonna say yes and no. Yes, in the sense that of course, like culture is something that we do take into account. Um, but I feel like it's not a South African thing. It's a therapy thing. So for me, therapy is very personal. So when someone comes into the therapeutic space, it's about them. Um, I don't think about whether they're from South Africa, they're from abroad. It's about them and what they bring into the space. And that becomes the central focus for me. We work with that. We adjust therapy and we work in the therapeutic space based on your individual experiences and what makes sense for you and what feels important for you so um that's why i'm saying yes and no yes because for mm -hmm. some people like being from south africa um, and having lived experiences in south africa and cultural stuff those are things that have impacted them but for them they might not necessarily be important with it 
in the therapeutic space. So for me, it's literally about the individual and it's person dependent. So the therapeutic space, literally, it's different for, for all of you. So I, I actually like describing therapy as a dance. And even with my clients, I'll say that. I'm like, think of therapy as a dance, right? So if we are in tune and we're moving together, if you go backwards and I come forward, then we're able to enjoy the benefits of the dance. But if we are constantly stepping on each other's feet, then it makes it difficult for us to actually enjoy the benefits of the actual dance. So being in a context and thinking that you can generalize um, contextual stuff to everyone you see within the therapeutic space, then it makes it quite difficult to understand the individual person that you're working with and what feels important for them. So for me, yes, in a general sense, of course, those are the kind of things that we need to take into account. But when it comes to therapy, literally, it's about the individual. And if it's a couple, it's about the couple. And the two individuals that are coming into the couple, those are the things that we consider that how do these differences between you two then affect the couple itself. And we consider the couple as an actual entity of its own. So yeah, I hope I hope that kind of answers your question. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I find it fascinating because even for me, so I was actually I was born in Ghana and then I my family and I, we moved to the U.S. when I was maybe eight or nine years old. And I grew up, you know, in, in, in this sort of dual culture where, you know, Ghanaian influence as well as Black American influence. And I could see that, you know, sometimes the stigma of, of even going to therapy was, was pretty high. Um, just in my community, uh, even going back to Ghana, you know, sometimes it would be over spiritualized, right? So sometimes there wouldn't be a, a central focus on mental health. And so I kind of had to learn from that, you know, as I got older in regards to seeing therapy as something that was very important for me, uh, even though it didn't necessarily fit into my cultural context. Um, and even even today, I can kind of see that shift moving, I think, in, in many minority communities where therapy is becoming more of a, a focus, more talked about, less stigmatized. Uh, I wonder for you, like even within the South African culture, um, it, is there any type of stigma or, uh, and if there is, you know, how do you, how do you go about it? How do you educate people in regards to therapy and psychology? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think firstly, I'd like to speak about therapy itself and then more broadly. I think a mistake that's often made, especially people who have been trained in like these westernized perspectives, is that that's what we want to prescribe, that we want to understand the problem purely from a Western perspective, whereas the person that you're seeing might have a different understanding of it and might make sense of it differently. And for me, what I've learned in the therapy that I do provide is that it's important for us to consider how the person understands the experiences because it's their experiences you might come into this space and be the professional in terms of mental health but they are the professional in terms of their lives and having that understanding and allowing them to share their understanding actually helps them to helps you guys to actually bring 
build more rapport um, and for the person to be a lot more committed into the therapeutic space because they feel heard um, and what feels important to them and how they make sense of things, those are things that are being considered in the therapeutic space. So I think from that sense, it's quite important for us to open up more room to actually having those kind of discussions within the therapeutic space and actually being curious about them. So if someone understands something from a spiritual perspective, being curious about that and trying to make sense of it with the person. Because the important thing is, is to provide some sort of containment and help the person make sense of things so that they can actually be able to go back into their communities and function. Right. Um, so I feel that's the first important thing for us to actually consider when we are working with people. And I guess it kind of answers your second question in terms of how do we then um, address this kind of stigma there is. So, yeah, there is quite a lot of stigma. Um, in relation to psychology and notions around psychology. And I think specifically, if we think about South Africa um, and the history of South Africa and apartheid, um, those are the kind of things that have significantly influenced um, the way in which people experience things, the way in which people make sense of things and their openness to therapy, right? Um, and their openness to getting help, right? And I mean, if we think about a black person, there's this social social expectation that black people are strong people, P black people are resilient, um, and whatever it is they confronted with, they can get through it. And it's notions like that. Yes, it's not to say that we're not resilient, but in that resilience, we tend to neglect certain things that need to be intervened for. Um, if you're struggling in a certain way, you don't have to struggle if there is something that is there to help you, right? And that's part of what therapy is is about to help understand how we've become socialized into certain things that we don't need to carry with us anymore. Yes, in the apartheid times, those kind of things, they helped us, they nurtured us, they are the things that kept us contained in a very volatile situation. But now those kind of reactions and that kind of way of being is something that isn't necessary for us. So I think that's the first thing that we need to highlight and kind of normalize that it's okay not to be okay. And there's a space for us to help you um, in terms of making sure that you do get okay. And then also in terms of psychology itself, I mean, um, there's the saying that Steve Biko once said, he said that, the most potent weapon the oppressor has is the mind of the oppressed. And that's literally what psychology about. It's about studying the mind and human behavior. And those notions were the same notions that were used to oppress people, to instill these beliefs that one group was superior to another group. Um, and even with psychological assessments, even with the deprivation that Black people had, um, being separated and put into circumstances that would of course affect your mental health. Those kind of things, and that sense of deprivation, the education system and not giving them the same kind of education system, obviously those things affect your mental health. And those were the same things that were used to reinforce that, no, look at um, when we're doing IQ assessments, white people are performing better than black people, when contextual stuff weren't taken into consideration. So it's that kind of history that makes it difficult for people to be trusting of these westernized notions that are now coming into the, the, the African space. Um, the same notions that kind of overlooked um, and 
criticized the African practices that were already existing. So which is why I was saying it becomes very important that as much as yes, psychology helps, um, the work that we do is very important and it's very helpful. But in order for people to build that sense of trust again, and for people to benefit from that, it's important for us to be very open to not just trying to use westernized approaches um, within the therapeutic space, but to allow people to come as they are, um, to bring their beliefs, to bring um, how they make sense of things, and to see how we can integrate those things in order to help them from a psychological perspective. That's incredible. Yeah, I mean, I absolutely, I 100% agree with that. I think I see even in the history of America, some of those similarities with regards to how psychology was used to uh, oppress um, Black Americans or, or minorities. And uh, even today, I think what has uh, perhaps even helped is the the growth of minorities becoming mental health professionals, right? Because, you know, for someone who's a client, you know, if they're a little bit shaky on, on psychology or seeing a therapist, maybe it might help them if they can go to someone that looks like them who can kind of understand their own cultural background and relate to them in a way that maybe someone else couldn't. And so I do see that as a benefit, but I really appreciate uh, just your, yeah, your story and, and the history behind that. Cause I think it's so important for people to understand all the ways that psychology can be used for good and all the ways that it could also be used for bad and, and how we navigate that even today in our society. So. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's very true. And I think even within the profession of psychology, um, there really needs to be quite a lot of work that's done. Um, firstly, I'm, I'm just thinking about my own experiences. I remember during our master's year, um, someone made a comment that it's unfair that there are so many Black people in our class um, because basically they're implying that we don't deserve to be there. It's just that we are there because they're trying to address this whole thing that Black people were previously marginalized. Um, so now we they, they're trying to address that kind of um, the disadvantage that we had and I'm just like I mean it's comments like that that still make you see that actually you know some people still have this mentality that um, there are certain things that there are certain spaces that black people shouldn't be in um, and those are the kind of things that I, I think are quite important for us to openly speak about um, and to have those kind of conversations because those kind of conversations are the same things that make it so difficult for people to be trusting that there's been any change in this field um, and that there's even any space for Black people to be receiving therapy. And I think even if we think about the price of therapy um, and the history of South Africa and, and, and other Black communities, I mean, it's, it's a luxury a lot of people can't afford. So those kind of things are things that we need to think about. What are structural issues that are still maintained that make it difficult for Black people to be able to even access those services? So I think... I mean, we're doing well in the sense that we've now opened up the space for Black people, but there's still a lot of issues that are ongoing that we need to start thinking about. Um, but I guess baby steps. Yeah, wow. I mean, it, it's comments like those that kind of, I think even as a clinician, it makes you think of like, do I belong here? You know, like you, sometimes you, you even question yourself when you hear comments like that. But 
um, it's amazing that, yeah, I, it just like you said, baby steps to kind of fight through that, that prejudice. Uh, for you, and I think this is kind of goes along with that in terms of building up protective factors for, you know, when you go into the field and all of the different types of adversity that you might feel. I know that it's important in regards to thinking about wellness as uh, holistic and making sure that even as the therapist or as the clinician, that they are also taking care of themselves. And so this is a question that I ask all of my, all of the people that interview with me is, you know, what are you doing for yourself, right? What are you doing to invest in regards to your mental health or your, your physical well-being, your mental well-being, or even your spiritual well-being in regards to being able to be uh, sort of refreshed as you give to so many people and so many different things? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think the first thing when we got into our master's program, it was compulsory for us to go to therapy. Um, it, like there was no way of negotiating that. And to be honest, I'm forever grateful for that because there's definitely a need and a space for that. And that has been so therapeutic. And I think more than anything else, it helps you to understand what it's like to be the client and the vulnerability that's that's in that seat. And it makes you so appreciative of the work that you actually do. And it allows you to treat it with a lot more delicacy because you know what it's like to be in that chair. So for me, that's definitely one of those things I'm also someone that's physically active I love going to the gym um, so that's something that helps me a great deal um, I've also tried to do other stuff outside of my field I'm quite an outgoing person so I like trying new stuff I like being with friends and family um, I started taking painting classes last year um, and painting has become something that I love absolutely to the core um, so those are the kind of things that I always make sure. And I think more importantly, leaving work at work um, and not bringing it to home. Um, that, that boundary becomes so important because it becomes so easy um, to take it with you. And the thing about therapy is that it's difficult to separate yourself as the professional from yourself as the person. Um, in the sense that you feel in therapy, you connect with people, their experiences and their challenges, they do tend to weigh on you. Um, and finding a way to actually um, let that go and not, and not just carry it with you throughout the time. I think that has been like the most important thing for me in making sure that I, I take care of myself. And I think, especially within the hospital setting, um, because that's where you get actually get exposed to quite a lot of traumatic stuff. So being able to leave work at work that has become very important for me. And actually to, to not take myself so seriously, like to, <laughs> to understand that I'm a person before I am a psychologist and to allow myself to be a person, to be able to make mistakes, to live like, just like everyone else and not expect myself to be this person that has had everything figured out um, because that, that's, that's not true. Um, and that's not who I am. That's what I do. That's what I help people do. Um, but it's not me. Um, and that's something that that becomes very important for me to remember. One of the things that I realized, uh, you know, when I was an undergrad, you know, you, you go to school, you go to work, you know, you're just so used to like balancing so many different things at once. And when I got into the, the mental health field, I realized like, okay, even though I'm not taking like physical work with me back home, 
uh, sometimes there's sort of that emotional um, baggage that I can easily bring back home with me. And so like having a way to kind of reconcile with that and, and kind of having to, to, to deal with that first before like coming back home and, and being able to have the mental capacity to engage in my everyday activities. So I, I find that to be still, even for me, a little bit of a struggle in regards to making sure that I'm still taking care of myself and how I invest in myself. So I appreciate your input and your perspective and, and how you go about it for yourself. Like that's, that's really cool. You know, we're already halfway through the year. Um, are there any, any other goals that you want to achieve in this year? Are there any other things that you're looking forward to uh, in regards to uh, your career and what you want out of it? Um, and then of course, please share with the audience about how they may be able to connect with you and social media and things like that. Yeah, sure. Uh, I mean, this is this is actually the first time in my whole life that I, I can actually say this. I mean, it's only June and it's the beginning of June. Let's just say it's May, end of May. Yeah. Um, and to be honest, I feel like I've done everything that I had set out to do for this year. Um, I mean, I started a private practice. I joined a medical legal practice. Um, I have a permanent job, I have an NPO, and my NPO is doing so well. Um, we recently started um, a lay counseling program where we're mentoring people who are interested in the field of psychology and providing them with opportunities to do lay counseling and training them from that perspective, which again um, links to the accessibility uh, issue that I was speaking about, that there needs to be a way that people are able to access services, and we provide free counseling sessions. Um, so that is something that that's very important for me. Um, I was also able to publish my paper this year with an international journal. Um, what else? I, I managed to get into a, a doctorate program that I've, I've wanted to get into. So I feel like I actually managed to achieve a lot this year. Um, and I think I deserve a break from goals. So right now, no, I don't have any other goals that I'm hoping to achieve this year. Um, I am looking forward to uh, the end of this year, though, in September, actually, the first week of October, that's when I'll be starting um, my doctorate. So I'm really excited about that. And honestly, I'm just focusing my energy on the things that I'm already doing right now, and making sure that I'm creating space, so that when I do start my doctorate, I'm able to be present and be there um, without worrying about any other stuff. Um, but definitely next year, like I feel like I've, I've already have like an entire list of things that I'd like to achieve. But again, um, I, I, I think once I start my doctorate, I do want to take things a bit slow, which is why I felt like it was quite important for me to kind of set a lot of things in motion um, before I actually get to that. So specifically for goals for this year. Um, honestly, like I think I'm I'm okay with where I'm at. Um, I feel like there's there's quite a lot that I've done, um, and it's okay to just sit back um, and enjoy the the things that you've been able to achieve, um, and continue to work on the things that you've started rather than overloading yourself with more stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and then you had another question for me that I seemed to have forgotten. <laughs> I was just wondering, you know, for people to connect with you, I know you have uh, your YouTube channel, which I will definitely put down the link below. But yeah, guys, please go check out uh, Bomi's YouTube channel. It provides so much 
more information. Uh, you learn so much more about yourself. And so, yeah, please um, let the audience know about some of the ways that they can connect with you. Oh, thank you for that, Phil. You're so kind. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I do have a YouTube channel. It's called Clinical Psychology in Real Life. Um, and honestly, that's the intention that I had for the channel to try to help people understand clinical psychology and everyday experiences and to help people who are interested in psychology to have access to information that I didn't have access to before. Um, so yeah, that's that's what the channel is about. Um, the only other social media platform that I'm on is Instagram. So my handle is Bomi underscore K-A-Y. Um, and then also I'm on LinkedIn, which is quite a professional platform. And I'm very open to other professional collaborations. Um, and any kind of work, I mean, that's related to mental health. Like I'm a very open-minded person. I like collaborating with people um, as long as it's within the scope of my goals, my values, and we share the same vision. I'm more than happy to partner up in those kind of stuff. Um, and yeah, those those are the only ways people can connect with me really because um, I'm, I'm not really on a lot of social media platforms. So yeah. That's awesome. Well, yeah, I'll definitely make sure to put down uh, those links in the description below so you, people can check out your channel and, and your page and everything like that. Uh, Bomi, it's been such a, a great interview with you. I feel like I've learned so much about obviously the culture in South Africa and then as well as you being a clinician. You have so much going on for you, which is super cool in regards to all the different interests that you're pursuing. And I uh, really, honestly, I really learned so much just from the way that you talked about psychology and from, from that cultural component. I think it, it's really important for people to understand how there's different ways to kind of go about it. And so uh, thank you so much for your time. And, um, you know, one thing that you mentioned was, you know, being able to not necessarily have to set goals for yourself and being able to kind of celebrate yourself and just celebrate the moments uh, of what you've already accomplished. And I think that's also such an important reminder for all of us in regards to, you know, kind of being workaholics and kind of wanting to do more, you know, sometimes doing less is also good as well. So thank you for sharing that and uh, just for being here today. I really, really appreciate it. Yeah. And thank you so much for having me here. Like, I, I honestly really appreciate um, you having reached out and us being able to connect um, and I mean, these kind of things are, are things that we really need uh, for us to actually be connecting with each other, to be able to share this kind of information, and most importantly, to have these kind of conversations, because it's only these kinds of conversations that can then bring about changes in society. And I think it's very difficult for people to initiate those kind of things. So thank you for having that kind of courage. Um, to be able to reach out and creating spaces like this because these are very important spaces. Well, thank you for being able to receive that. I really appreciate that. Well, uh, that'll be all, guys. Thank you guys so much. We'll see you guys on the next episode.